This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Okay, hands up. How many of us watched the footage of the mum who grabbed her toddler by one arm and pulled her out of the baby pool in her suburban backyard as a snake made its way towards her? Snake sightings in residential areas have spiked across Victoria over the last couple of months, and a lot of reasons for that is due to the flooding that we've seen across Victoria. But Jane McNaughton, I was going to say in snake-free area of Ballarat, but there's possibly quite a lot of snakes in Ballarat. We've seen pictures of snakes everywhere, haven't we? From backyards to behind bins, in people's homes, in all of those strange types of places that you wouldn't expect to see a snake. For the reasons you've just mentioned, approximately 10 times the regular number of snakes are expected this year, Rochelle. Oh, oh no. how do you feel about that? Not great, to be honest. <laughs> I have been on high alert and I've been trying to be alert but not alarmed. Okay, when it comes to snakes, to be aware that there will be snakes here, that we know now. I think growing up, we thought that snakes were on farms and in the country, but we're learning more and more that snakes are in suburban areas. And to quote our next guest that's coming on, I think he used the word, our suburbs are infested with snakes infested. at the moment. Infested. Yeah, infested. not that I want to alarm anyone. Awesome. Glad I've got a backyard. <laughs> I have a backyard. But today we're going to be looking at everything from some of the myths and the mythology around snakes, how venom is being used as well when it comes to science, that there's been a new national day of you know, snakes and, and venom awareness. So we'll go through that as well. But just generally, Jane, but snake questions, snake talk back. Totally. Let's, go, let's get into it because I think it's really interesting with whether you love or you hate snakes, there's so much to know about them. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Rochelle Hunt with you in Melbourne, Jane McNaughton with you in ABC Ballarat. And let's bring in Dr Andrew Watt and Dr Tim Jackson. Together they are the co-directors of the Australian Venom Research Unit. They're based at the School of Biomedical Sciences at Melbourne University. Or as they shall be known today, the Snake Dudes. Snake Dudes. <laughs> Hello, Snake Dudes. Hi, how are we going? How long do snakes live? Because I, 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 I've got this vision that they're like crocodiles where they just kind of live forever until they either get so big that they can't continue to feed themselves or they get killed by a predator. Am I completely wrong about that? You're not completely wrong. Uh, they have indeterminate growth, which means that they do grow throughout their lives like crocodiles, but the bigger they get, the slower they grow, uh, which is why we don't see so many you know, monstrously huge snakes. And they can live a pretty long time. Depends on the species of snake. So we think that the venomous snakes that we're probably mostly going to be talking about in this chat live uh, slightly less long than, say, pythons. We know some pythons can live 40 or 50 years, and certainly some of the venomous snakes can live a few decades as well. So they're quite long-lived, yeah. So why are we seeing more snakes or do, actually let me rephrase that are we seeing more snakes in suburban backyards at the moment as a result of the floods we might be seeing more snakes but it doesn't necessarily mean that there's more snakes around that there usually would be uh, if we think about the floods uh, dispersing sort of humans and other animals it's the same thing's happening to the habitats of snakes so they're having to go into areas that they wouldn't normally be in because the water's sort of taken their homes that might mean they're a bit more visible than they usually are uh, but there might not necessarily be more numbers about than usual so there's been a lot of discussion around the health effects of these floods on humans. It, do the poor water conditions and the fact that these snakes are having to move out of their usual environments have any health effects on the snakes? Look, absolutely. If there's certainly when you get flooding, you often get pollutants that are leaking into waterways and that is going to affect snakes as it affects anything else. There's actually recently been a study done on Perth precisely on this, on using tiger snakes, which we also get in Victoria as a sort of an indicator species for looking at uh, amounts of pollutants in the environment. So the truth is we don't know the extent of the effect of this sort of thing on the snakes, but we know that it's there and we also know that we can use snakes and taking tissue samples from snakes to monitor the levels of pollutants in the environment. This text, we were talking myths and mythology. Let's jump straight into mythology. This is from Claire in Gisborne. It says, hi there. In Italian tradition, a dream of snakes 
is not a good omen. It usually means that someone is deceiving you. And I had such a dream last night. <laughs> and now it's on the radio. Mm. Oh, spooky. Well, it's good to hear that you've got a vivid dream life, uh, Claire. Look, Tim and I were talking about this the other day in the sense that the snakes are so other, aren't they? They're so very different from us as people. They have no arms, no legs. They slither around. They have these fangs. They're venomous and those kinds of things. So naturally, sort of in a mythological sense, they've been given this otherworldly sort of, uh, I guess, vibe about there or symbolism around them. And, and we can find that symbolism all through history. And, and Tim, you've probably got the examples to hand with that. It really varies from tradition to tradition. So absolutely, as Andrew says, they're a symbol of other. Sometimes they're a symbol of traversing the underworld or a feathered serpent might be a connection between the underworld and the heavens. And sometimes dreams about snakes are actually interpreted as dreams containing messages, like a bite from a snake could be the transfer of some kind of esoteric or mystical knowledge. But snakes are very uh, esoteric. Snakes are very cryptic, right? You know, snakes spend a lot of their time hiding. And what we worry about when we're worrying about snakes is the snake that we haven't seen often. You know, we might tread on a snake or accidentally put our hands on a snake. And, you know, historically and contemporarily, that's when most bites actually happen, a kind of accidental encounter with a hidden snake. So that sort of fits with the, the, the dream interpretation that you're giving there, that they are hidden and dangerous. So, But we should clarify that they're not, mal- they're not malevolent creatures. They're not these sort of dangerous and sort of... They're defensive creatures. If you put your hand down somewhere, if you step on uh, something, uh, understandably it's going to arc up a little bit and get defensive. And sometimes that results in a bite. Other times it just results in the snake going away. Uh, so while in the dream, you know, uh, being bitten... <laughs> Who would have thought <laughs> you were coming something? on to interpret people's dreams <laughs> yeah. when we're talking about snakes? Putting our Jungian analyst cap yes, on. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> now, we have been told, Dr Andrew Watt and Dr Tim Jackson, the text line, that we have to call you snake spurts, please. Oh, Otherwise, it's a lost opportunity. So Feel that's free. what you will Feel be free. referred to <laughs> from now on. But you were just discussing the snakes you haven't seen. <laughs> and I, I don't mind snakes so much. I really, really don't like spiders, though. So I kind of I understand that whole fear. Is, is there any hope for people that are just afraid of uh, snakes to the point where they, it, it becomes illogical? Is there any hope? For <laughs> As in, like, can I you mean, get over? Can, is that a fear you can get over? I, 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 should I have feel said. like that's more a question for, a, a, for an a, expert a, psychiatrist. We're going to talk about exposure therapy. So, from Jungian analysis to exposure therapy, the way that I've always tried to to, to deal with this is uh, to deal with people's problems with snakes <laughs> is to you know encourage people to yeah take an interest, um, see that snakes are in fact very very fascinating animals, but really just to build on what Andrew was saying a moment ago, to notice that, to note that snakes really aren't out to get us. You know, they're we, not malicious? They're not malicious. <laughs> you know, from the perspective of a snake, a snake is a pretty small animal and its head's, you know, a few inches off the ground. A human yeah. is this giant, lumbering, naked ape. And from the perspective <laughs> of snakes, we're very, very dangerous to them. We are potential predators and we may even just kill them because we don't like them. So snakes really do want nothing to do with us. So snakes, the snake that we don't see is hoping not to be seen by us. It is actually hiding from us in most cases. And that's perhaps a lot of where the fear comes from, right? Because fear kind of stems from uh, an uncertainty or an unknown. And if there's this hidden force that could do us harm in some way, uh, it's, it's pretty natural to have a, a, a psychological response to that of being feared. And plus all of the myths and the mythology that you've been talking about. I mean, these are storylines that have been passed down, you know, for yes, hundreds if not thousands of years. <laughs> so that's not going to help Either, no, it's it? deeply embedded. Uh, it's it's so deeply embedded. I mean, we can say that there is an innate fear of snakes, and there's even a theory that snakes are involved in the development of primate vision. So, you mm. know, we've had a, a co-evolutionary dance going on with snakes for, you know, tens of millions of years, probably. Snakes have eaten our ancestors, and, of course, snakes, venomous snakes that are in our environments are potentially dangerous animals. So the fear of snakes, which I would like to turn into a healthy respect, mm. um, is very rational. It's right? a reasonable they are best portion. Yes, exactly, yeah. So it's primal, essentially. Indeed. (laughs) Dr Andrew Watt and Dr Tim Jackson are with you, co-directors of the Australian Venom Research Unit. Questions around baby snakes, and that probably falls into are we seeing more because of breeding season, but also the myth. Now, I want to know if it's true or if it's an urban myth that baby snakes are more dangerous. That is a myth. Uh, baby snakes, generally speaking, have pretty much the same venom as adult snakes. So they're sort of as dangerous on that level, but they tend to produce, of course, much less venom than adult snakes. Now, there are exceptions to this. The brown snakes in Australia have 
very different venom when they're babies from the venom that they're going to have as adults. But there's absolutely no evidence that it's more dangerous. In fact, we would probably lean the other way, although given that we're not certain, you should definitely treat baby brown snakes as though they are very dangerous. One of the common myths that we have is that baby snakes don't know how to control how much venom they deliver. You know, I got so. told that yesterday. <laughs> and I've been told that many times myself. And there's absolutely no evidence that that's the case either. So generally speaking, an adult snake is much more dangerous than a baby snake because it's larger and can deliver a larger amount of venom. We've got Philo, uh, we've got George on the line from Kerrang. George, what was your question? Oh, good day. I've got a retriever, and when I go up up uh, out into the bush, he'll often bring me back uh, blue tongues and stumpy tails. It doesn't hurt them; just brings them back, and I let him go. He's never brought me back a brown snake, and there's plenty of them around. Is there any evidence that they can tell the difference by smell or? Mm. Am I just lucky? Well, I think those blue tongues and those stumpy tails are lucky in the first place. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that your retriever doesn't hurt them. I mean, brown snakes are very fast-moving and intimidating critters. You know, if a brown snake's out during the day and your, your dog is seeing it, even if he's moving towards it, that brown snake has recourse to a pretty impressive threat display. You know, the brown snakes have this classic S-shaped open-mouth threat display. They're also very, very fast-moving and keen to get away if they have the opportunity, as opposed, of course, to your blue tongues and your stumpy tails or shingleback lizards, which are, you know, a bit more ponderous in their movements. So they're probably just a lot easier to, to interact with. But I wouldn't, you know, put it beyond question that perhaps your retriever is also sensible enough to know to leave those snakes I mean, alone. Having a, having a Labrador myself, I know they're not the most, uh, <laughs> they're not the most graceful of creatures, and so your, your retriever galumping around the place might be sort of mm. uh, foreshadowing that he's coming a little bit more easily for a brown snake to but, sort of but make Jane a quick But Jane and I exit. were talking off air, you know, dogs and snake bites. This, mm. yeah. especially if you're in regional or rural Victoria, or actually turns out in suburban Melbourne. Absolutely, now. Suburban it's definitely Melbourne, a thing, yeah. look, particularly in the in the warmer weather in spring and summer. In usual years in Victoria spring and summer when the sun is out it's best to sort of be wary of, of longer grasses so uh, what do you, you do if you, you suspect your dog has been bitten take it, to, is the, take it straight to the vet uh, vets have anti-venom for, for snake bite as well they know how to look for the clinical signs they're slightly different to what we'd expect to see in people uh, that are bitten so if, you, if your dog's been in long grass and you know a few hours later or, or half an hour or so later is acting a little bit strange or having some symptoms of upset in any way take it straight to the vet and time is very much of the essence here so if you've seen your dog or cat interacting with a snake even if you haven't seen a bite or anything like that even if they aren't showing any symptoms of envenoming at that time assume that they have been bitten and get them to the vet because things can go south very very quickly yeah. for our pets when they get bitten by snakes and what about compression for animals mm -hmm. like you would humans it works in exactly the same way, and maybe we'll get into that in more detail a little bit further on. So, yes, you could apply a compression bandage if the animal has been bitten on a limb in particular. That might be effective. Fur might be an issue when it comes to that sort of thing. So, again, your number one thing, as Andrew said, is to get them to the vet as soon as possible. Snakes, birds. On that, if it's it's coming up to Christmas now, we know that uh, you might not have the availability in regional areas to get a vet normally, let alone over Christmas. Uh, there is a rumour that vitamin, I think vitamin C uh, tablets somehow help with mm. uh, dogs. That's something my my father has suggested is a, an alternative. Is that correct, or is, is it? You just should see James' face right now. <laughs> <laughs> Look, venom is a highly complex series of different toxins. Uh, so the notion that vitamin C is going to do anything really at all uh, in the clinical setting. Uh, I don't think there's going to be much stock to that at all. Myth-busted? Yeah, I'd say that's pretty strongly myth-busted. I wouldn't recommend that. I don't think it's going to hurt if you take it in the car on the way to the vet or to the doctor. That's fine. It's not going to do any damage. But the, your, your best bet is go straight to get, get clinical attention straight away. This text, we had a wedding at Meridjig last Friday. We had 28 glam tents set up in the paddock, six snake sightings in the lead-up. Hence, we did warn the glampers to keep their tents zipped up at night and hopefully none of those guests are listening. <laughs> Let's go to Jay. <laughs> Jay's in Belgrave Heights. Hi, Jay. Hey, how are you doing? Very well. What's your question? So I, I live in a property in the Dandenong Ranges and I've got lots of red-bellied blacks around. And I came across something recently, like I, I stumbled across a snake in the yard that was very brown on the back, but it had the very red flanks of a red belly black. And I'm not sure if I'd be, if I should be really concerned that I have a brown snake living 10 metres from the house, 
or if it's just a variation on colour. I'd love some advice. Unfortunately, without a photograph, it's really impossible to identify snakes. I mean, they do have a fair bit of variation. And actually, you mentioned it was a small snake, right? So red bellies tend not to be as glossy black when they're younger. So there is a chance that it was a, a red belly, maybe a younger red belly that hadn't uh, taken on that black coloration yet. Could have been a copperhead. You know, what you're describing sounds a little bit like a copperhead as well. Doesn't sound so much like a brown snake. But then again, you know, never say never. Brown snakes are highly variable. They can be black. They can be bright orange they can be banded so sometimes the names which seem really straightforward mm. you know red belly black snake brown snake etc they're really just straightforward descriptive names but they can be a little bit misleading because there is variation within these species i would just say treat them all as though they're potentially dangerous now that i'm glad that you're happy to have the red bellies around and i think that you should be and they're a relatively inoffensive snake if left alone of course they can mm. still give you a nasty bite so whatever type of snake it is just keep your distance and let it go about its business Hopefully that helped out. Jay, we've also got Sharon on the line from Sunbury. You've got some interesting observations about international snakes, I believe, Sharon. Yeah, so I'm actually from Manitoba, and there's a place called Narcissus. Manitoba doesn't really have any poisonous snakes, per se, but we have a garter snake, and the garter snake is um, blue, green, black, absolutely beautiful, and we're taught as children to pick it up and put it in the garden because it's good for the garden. And they become our pets. Oh. But if you bring up Narcissus Manitoba, every school child in Manitoba close enough within 200 miles goes on a school trip in the spring of the year where the garter snakes will actually come into in the winter to hibernate because we get minus 30, minus 40. And then they boil out of the ground in the spring of the year to the point that they've made tunnels for them to go under the road so they don't get squished. Sharon, it's not a great line, so we'll leave it there. But what I find fascinating is living in an area where there's just one type of snake and mm. you get used to that. But then locally we have that here. So Phillip Island, there's mm. only one snake. There's only the copperhead. Mm. And my uncle said that it's the type of snake that if you stood on it, Richard would smile at you. And I was like, well, <laughs> I might I have that I'm going to try that. Please, but- please don't take that as health advice <laughs> yeah, for anyone yeah. listening. Yeah. <laughs> but you get used to living in an area where there might only be one snake or the snakes aren't venomous and then all of a sudden you're in Victoria where Mm. you have to be on alert all the time because everything is potentially going to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly. I mean, it was really nice to hear that little story about the dens, the garter snake dens in in Manitoba, uh, where, as she was saying, you know, thousands of snakes all hibernate together and they all emerge at the same time in spring. Like, what a spectacular... I've never seen it in person, but what a spectacular thing uh, for someone like me, for a snake spurt, (laughs) as I'm being called. Um, But certainly, like, in Australia, um, wherever you are, you know, venomous snakes are everywhere in Australia. This is the truth. And in fact, in places like Tasmania, there are no non-venomous snakes. There are only venomous snakes. Um, or on Phillip Island, as you're talking about, that one snake is a venomous snake. So in Australia, we really, unless, you know, we're snake experts, we really do need to treat everything as though it's it's potentially dangerous. And of course, I don't mean to be very fright, fe- you know, fearful. I certainly don't mean to, you know, aggressively pursue that snake with a shovel. But I do mean to, to give it a, a wide berth. Uh, and I mean, let it go about its We business. should clarify, while we've, got some pheno- while we've got some phenomenal creatures here, and some phenomenally venomous creatures as well, particularly snakes, we don't have a huge number of bites per year. Uh, so if we look at all venomous injuries uh, across Australia across the year, we, we had 3,500 bites in, in 2017, 2018. How many that was, deaths? That was, that was bites and stings. Right. Uh, so that was, bees and wasps are actually mm. the worst thing in terms of hospitalisations. We get about 1,200 hospitalisations from bees. Uh, only 600 So they, are they counted together? We, Snake bites, wasps, no, no, we, stings? Uh, there was an investigation into venomous injuries. But in terms of deaths that you asked, seven uh, that year from snakes. Uh, 12 from bees and wasps. And that was actually an unusually high number. That was a high the, number. The average for snakes is sort of two to three. Yeah. And maybe maybe four or five hundred hospitalizations for snakes. Yeah, I think, I think it was a, that year I think it was 600, mm-hmm. but only 180 cases showed any clinical signs of envenoming. Uh, so... While we have venomous creatures, they largely keep to themselves. Uh, So you don't need to be too fearful there. And we do want to contrast this with the the global situation where snakebite is actually a... a 
you know, massive public health issue in the tropical developing world. It's a neglected tropical disease, as the, the World Health Organization classifies it. And so why, while worldwide there may be 100,000 snake bite deaths every year, mm. as Andrew's saying, you know, here in Australia we get very few. And that's a little bit interesting given this reputation that we have for the mm. abundance of venomous snakes and having the most venomous snakes in the world and all of that. If you compare them in terms of their actual clinical impact, in Australia it's far less than it is in many other places. And, and part of that's the medicine we have. We've got some phenomenal like, world-leading antivenoms available. So if you get bitten and you get to the hospital, chances are you're going to get a free vial of antivenom available for you if you need it. Do you need to know the species of snake that you've been bitten by? You don't need to know anything. You can go into a hospital and they'll sort you out. There's a couple really? of different ways that they can do that. One, they can look at the clinical signs, uh, so how you present. Uh, they freaking do do swabs. Out. Yeah. In, in, so yeah, freaking out. It's usually high on the list of all, even for stick bites if you've stood in a stick uh, and sort of um, panicked. But we can, we've also got a product called polyvalent, which just means uh, poly meaning many. Uh, so it covers many snakes species. So if you're not sure what you've been bitten by, it'll cover kind of the basic ones oh. in the area. We've even got a kid called the Snake Venom Detection Kid, which... What does can... that do? <laughs> <laughs> well, well actually, it's a, it's a little bit of a misnomer because <laughs> it doesn't actually detect venom so much as identifies the immunotype that the venom comes from, which basically just means it tells you what kind of anti-venom you need if you've been envenomed. So what we say is don't wash the bite side if you've yes. been bitten uh, because... Doctors can take a swab from the bite site. There may be a little bit of venom that's there. They can use this SBDK, as we call it, the snake venom detection kit, to determine what anti-venom you might need. Mm. And if you're showing clinical signs of envenoming, but you've got a negative on that test or it doesn't tell you which type, then we've got recourse to that polyvalent anti-venom that Andrew mentioned as well. Do you always know you've been bitten by a snake? We've just got oh, a text on the line here from CB saying, does being bitten by a snake actually hurt or is it just like a small prick? Do you always know that you've yeah. been bitten? Sometimes. <laughs> uh, sometimes you're aware that you've been bitten. Uh, other times you may think you've been bitten and you've not been bitten. Uh, if you see a snake and you feel a, a, a pinch, uh, other, you might have been hit by a stick or something along those lines. Uh, other times you may not see a snake and you may not feel a bite, but you have been bitten. Mm. Uh, even on top of that, sometimes you've been bitten, but they haven't injected any venom. Uh, that's what we call a dry bite. And we're not quite sure how often that occurs. Sometimes uh, they may have tried to inject venom, but just may have not been uh, had not have pierced the skin at the time that the, genin, uh, the venom came out, or they might not have injected any venom at all. And it, it, sorry. No. Import, it's important to note, though, that a snake bite will not necessarily look like you imagine it's going to look. So people imagine the kind of vampire, two-puncture wound kind of Took thing. Took the words out of my mouth. Yes. It's a vampire <laughs> quote. Yep. It, it's not necessarily going to be like that. It might be a little scratch. It might not even be bleeding. So mm. as Andrew was saying, you know, if, if you feel a snake, if you've seen a snake and you felt that it might have come in contact with you, and certainly if the, the head of a snake has come in contact with you, even if there's no obvious sign of a bite, you have to treat that as a potentially life-threatening yeah. emergency. The venom of some of our snakes is so toxic that a tiny little scratch, which might not even draw blood, could still make you very sick or even threaten your life. So, Tread with caution. <laughs> Here is a question that I never thought we would get asked, but I so want to know the answer. This is from Judy. Do snakes give off an odour? I believe I'm able to smell a snake if one is around. Incredible. Yep, that's fascinating that you believe you can smell them. And it's quite possible. I mean, snakes will actually use... I mean, they certainly give off odours for many reasons. They communicate with each other pheromonally, as most animals do, but they'll also have a defensive odour. So usually we don't smell this, um, us snake spurts, unless we've actually handled a snake. But as well as biting and trying to get away and stuff, a lot of snakes will use musking, as we as we talk about. They've got anal glands that they can secrete a foul-smelling fluid from that if it gets on you, it's very, very difficult to wash off. You can ask my wife about that she's never happy when that happens to me <laughs> <laughs> but so yes yeah, snakes do have an odor and they will use it defensively look, as well that, that is something that you experience uh, we've uh, i've helped had the pleasure of helping to milk a uh, death adder and a few other bits and pieces uh, and one of the things that you have to do is, is cover the exit hole because uh, <laughs> one of the defense mechanisms straight away is that they are going to excrete and they are going to cause a bit of a stink and and those kinds of things so many things in that <laughs> one <laughs> sentence that how do you milk a snake <laughs> how just really quickly how do you smoke yeah uh, very, very, very carefully. Uh, you, have somebody, you have somebody grab the, the head of the snake and, and put it over a vial with some glad wrap or something similar over the top of it uh, for it to pierce and then uh, put venom into it. Yeah, You'd be we, wanting to buy the good glad, wouldn't you? Yeah, you wouldn't yeah, want to be yeah. buying the no-name yeah. cheese stuff. Nice stuff. Usually we're using parafilm, maybe maybe a latex glove. But, yeah, getting them to bite a taut membrane over a, a container. Or also we increasingly use pipette milking. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where we'll use a, a, 
a pipette, insert it over the fang, massage the gland, push the fang sheath back a little bit, venom squirts into the pipette. We can use that for milking very small snakes, which you can't milk by getting them to bite something. Um, yeah, so there are a number of different methods for collecting venom. Those are the very much don't try that at yes, home. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Only, or snakes birds only, I should say. And, I mean, Maurice and Warrigal's actually sent a text saying, how is the venom used now in any sort of current or f- historical medical practices? Is that, I mean, the reason why you're milking a snake mm-hmm. for, I guess, how we're advancing how we use venom and how we use venom as a way to help in so many different areas of science. Absolutely. So, if, again, if we go back to venom being this complex mixture of toxins, right, and they're toxins that fundamentally are trying to interact with another physiological system, in this case, uh, either a rodent or a mammal or marsupial, uh, in a clinical setting, a human. Uh, so they're, they're these compounds or these little molecules that are directly interacting with our, either our nervous system or, or our vascular system or the blood. So in Australia, predominantly neurotoxins or hematoxins, so blood and nervous system. That means that we can have a look at these specific toxins and, and learn a bit more about how our bodily systems work and perhaps perhaps tease them out and use them for medications in their own right. There's a lot wow. of groups trying to do that. Or use them to just better understand how our systems work. Fascinating. The other major reason we should highlight for, for... So one reason is this drug design and discovery. Uh, another reason is basic research, just to try and work out, you know, what's in the venoms, how are they evolving, all of that kind of stuff. But also just anti-venom manufacturer. You know, one of the one of the major reasons to collect venom is to make anti-venom because mm-hmm. anti-venom is made by immunising, hyper-immunising a large animal, usually a horse, with the venom that has been extracted, that has been milked from the venomous organism that you need to make the anti-venom against. So yeah, a number of reasons why we collect it. Dr. Andrew Watt and Dr. Tim Jackson are with you. Together they are the co-directors of the Australian Venom Research Unit, which is based at the School of Biomedical Sciences at Melbourne University. There is a myth that I want to get to in just a moment, that snakes somehow manage to get themselves around the horns of a U to get across floodwaters as to whether or not that's true. But Jane, snakes rocking up in strange areas is something that we've seen more and more as a result of the floods. It has been. And someone that has a bit of experience with a snake in the wrong place is <laughs> Bob Thatcher. He's a fisherman from Gippsland who had a bit of an encounter that I'll let Bob explain on the radio just now. Bob, welcome to the Conversation Hour. What happened to you last year? Well, last year I was out fishing on Lake Wellington, uh, just out of Sale. And, and uh, uh, while I was out there, I was moved around a fair bit around the lake in the boat and uh, I stopped about lunchtime, had a bit of lunch and just dropped the anchor and uh, threw my lines in the water after I'd had lunch and as I turned around I noticed that there was something that was different on the floor of the boat and I thought well, that wasn't much, uh, I'll fix that up and pick it up in a minute. So I walked back to my seat and turned to sit down on the seat and looked down to see what this foreign object was and it was a tiger snake. Did you fall uh, out of the boat with shock, Bob, or...? Just, just about jumped overboard. <laughs> <laughs> so you were out. You weren't, you know, you weren't on the, the, the banks here. You were out fishing. Uh, yes, I was 100 yards offshore, I suppose, on the other side of uh, Lake Wellington where there's no um, road access or anything like that. The only way to get there is by boat. So what do you and, do in that uh, instance, Bob, when you're out and you're, you know, 100 metres or wherever it is from shore and there's a, a snake in the boat? Well, the first thing I said to myself was to don't move. Uh, it had its head in the air. It was tongue was flicking backwards and forwards. And it's new well seemed to be sniffing around, I suppose, with his tongue flicking. But uh, I just froze and didn't move. And I suppose I sat like I stood like that for about the like, next four minutes. Yes, <laughs> 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 the next four days. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then eventually the, the snake turned on itself and it slithered away. I had some tackle on the, the left-hand side of the boat and and some gear down there, and it slithered off, and it went down into there, and it slithered, it slithered around the tackle that I had in the box backwards and forwards. And, and I suppose the area that was there is like a, a, a car trailer, a six by four, and that was about the only area that he had in to, to uh, uh, slither around in. So he wasn't going very away very far from me. And uh, How did you get rid of the snake? Well, I wasn't going to touch it. So I thought the only way I'm going to get out of it is to try and get back to the boat ramp and see if I can get a, uh, a snake catcher to catch it because I wasn't going to touch it. And uh, that was what I tried to do. And eventually, as it slithered around, it, 
it settled down in behind some of the tackle that I had and I was able to get past it, pull up the anchor and pull the lines in so started the motor and started heading across the lake. Then I thought oh, I'd better give my, my son a ring and see if I can uh, get him to see if he can find a snake catcher. So uh, I, started, I didn't go too fast across the lake, didn't want to stir up the snake for a while. And my son uh, rang me back about five minutes later and said, yes, he'd caught hold of the, the <laughs> snake catcher in town and, and that if he'd, uh, he'd come down to the boat ramp, down to the, the uh, heart ramp, boat uh, uh, ramp down in uh, Sale, right? And uh, it's about 10 kilometres away from where I was at that stage. So, And uh, it all ended well, Bob. So you ended yes, up yes, on shore. I headed, I headed off across the lake. took me about half an hour to... The snake catcher arrived about 10 minutes later and and uh, we tried to get the snake out and it found a way down into the bills of the, the boat. Um, so we decided to pull the boat out of the water, pulled the boat out of the water. It must have been laying on some polystyrene flotation stuff under the floor. Didn't like that, so it came out in a hell of a hurry. Oh. And then the snake catcher was able to grab it, and, and then he let it go eventually. So, oh, I don't know if I was clenching my fists or holding my breath or doing all of those <laughs> yeah. things during that yeah. story. Yeah. Bob, I'm so glad you're all right. But it sounds like, and from the nodding from our snake spurts that we have here, it sounds like you've done the exact right thing. Bob Thatcher, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. How common is it to be out fishing and? look down and think, hang on a second, I've got a bloody stowaway here. <laughs> I don't know that we've got specific numbers on yeah. uh, fish, fishing uh, stowaways. Uh, but quickly, uh, Bob handled that in a textbook fashion. Uh, back to the, to the fishing story side of things, though, they're going to hang out anywhere that's vaguely warm. Uh, so at the start of the day, they're cold-blooded creatures. They're going to be somewhere that's going to need to warm them up so they can get some activity. Metal in particular in the morning sun is going to be nice for that. Uh, so sitting in a tinny for a little while in the morning, uh, unbeknownst to him, going fishing for a trip uh, out near Sale. But yeah, can I ask a stupid question? Could you have put it in the water? Could it swim? Absolutely. I mean, it may have even boarded the snake from the water. Snakes are excellent oh. swimmers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's add boats to the yeah. list of things I'm not getting on. Ti- I mean, tiger snakes are very you know water associated snakes, so they live around water courses. They're excellent swimmers. They even hunt underwater, mm-hmm. um, and you know it could be out there foraging, swimming a, a decent clip away from the land and just board a boat because there's a little so bit of So on that then, when we look at the Murray and we look at some of the rivers that we have at the moment and snakes are trying to find themselves new homes because they've been displaced because of the floods, but would it mean that we would potentially have more snakes in the water? Highways between towns, even some of the rivers. Sure, I mean there's more water, so more snakes in the water. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as you say, they're they're you know wherever they're normally hiding, living hollow logs underground, whatever. Those things are getting flooded, so snakes are on the move, and they're more conspicuous. Again, if a snake swimming on the surface of the water is far easier to see than a snake slithering through long grass, so mm. it just makes them that much more conspicuous. And even though they are excellent swimmers, of course they get tired, and that might be cold water as well. They might be wanting to get out of that water, so they're going to climb up onto whatever's available, whether that's trees, fences, into people's backyards, into people's houses if they're built up above the above the waterline. So absolutely, we're going to see more snakes during floods. You're listening to The Conversation Hour, Rochelle Hunt in Melbourne, Jay McNaughton in Ballarat, and we're joined by our snake spurks, Dr Andrew Watt and Dr Tim Jackson, the direct, co-directors of the Australian Venom Research Unit. We just heard from Bob there who had a textbook response in your words to a snake in a boat but not everyone's so lucky we've got christina from maryborough on the line uh, christina what's happened to you recently oh hello how you going um i was um i was in bed and i no, had you... a lot of paperwork down the side of my bed and i got out of bed put my feet on the ground you still there? Can you hear me? Oh, my God, yes, yes I'm having a heart attack. We are speechless. Sorry, Christina. Oh, right. Please, Sorry. No worries. No worries. Yep. Continue. Yeah, All right. So you're in... Yes, yeah, so okay. you got me out yeah, of bed, bed, but anyway. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> okay, okay, so you're out of bed. Yep. Yep. Well, I'm sitting on the side of the bed, and I'm in bed feet, and I've got paperwork down the side of the bed to sort out, and I heard a noise, and I thought, oh, that could be a mouse, and then it sounded a bit louder than a mouse. Mm. And I thought, oh, I wonder what that is. <laughs> and then I saw about oh, two and a half foot of a snake. <laughs> and then I'm thinking, 
idea. So while I was lifting up one foot, it somehow, because I moved so quickly, then I saw its head and then the next minute with my other foot, somehow I stood on it, but not hard because I was gingerly trying to get back up on the bed and then I felt a bite on my foot. So... Everyone here is freaking out except for our two guests, right, which are just taking this all in their stride, except for the part, Tim, where Christina said, I stood on it. That's when mm. you actually went, hmm. Well, I'm wondering what happened with, well, with the bite. Um, well, I went, had to go to hospital. My husband panicked. <laughs> I didn't. Um, he missed the exit to the emergency department, but we won't talk about him because I think he's listening. <laughs> um, Just throw some shade on the radio. It's fine, Christina. <laughs> so, and did they give you I'm antivenom still, at the hospital? Um, no, they did the... I uh, went to our local hospital. They argued the toss which way to um, bandage, mm-hmm. whether from top to bottom or bottom to top, and I'm thinking to please bandage it. And then I was transferred to Ballarat Hospital. Oh, the doctor came in, actually, at our hospital and yeah. bandaged it properly. And then I was taken by ambulance to Ballarat and they they take the bandage off slowly and it was one of those dry bites. Mm. Right. Well, apart and from your husband missing the turn, it sounds like you've been treated very well uh, in the clinical setting there. Uh, look, I mean, that's a, these accidents happen. Uh, as you've noted, it was a defensive bite from a snake uh, following being stepped on, and you've done the exact right thing. You've headed off to the hospital straight away and got clinical care, and they've looked after you. In oh. terms of the bandaging, uh, yeah. we tend to recommend from the feet up or the end of the limb up, uh, but if you're in a panic, don't stress too much. Uh, the biggest thing is to stay calm and do what you've done, and that's seek medical advice. And it sounds like Chris, I don't think Christina would panic in any circumstances, <laughs> no. just quietly. Yeah. Uh, Christina, that, you know, when you hear stories, and especially if you've got friends that are from overseas, and we put the fear of God into them around what it's like living in Australia, and I don't <laughs> think Christina <laughs> is helping bed. with that stereotype. You get out of bed, you step on a brown snake. It does happen. There have been cases, certainly in Australia, and cases with much worse outcomes, and I'm glad that Christina had a good outcome, uh, where people have been bitten in bed. These are very rare, and we don't want to freak people out. It's actually a far bigger issue in other parts of the world. So in Africa, in sub-Saharan Africa, in South Asia, bites to sleeping people who may be sleeping on the floor are not an uncommon occurrence, and sometimes people don't wake up. So there are particular kinds of snakes in those parts of the world which are known for biting sleeping people, maybe confusing them for a possible prey animal, or they're just foraging around the person, the person rolls on top of them, they bite defensively. These things do happen, uh, and sometimes with tragic outcomes. So certainly glad that in Christina's case things worked out well. So when we heard about the glampers before, Mm. then there were six snakes spotted, we can now camp on riverfronts we are going to be camping more than ever because it's so expensive to you know fly anywhere mm-hmm. how careful should we be when we're camping to do things like zip up tents and just be aware you know especially I mean, when we're riverfront i mean taking those basic precautions precautions like zipping up tents is a, is a great idea uh if you're out walking wear wear boots that go slightly higher wear loose fitting trousers uh, and those kinds of things because that way if a bite does accidentally occur it's more likely to get fabric than skin and those kinds of things but more importantly just have a look where you're going if you're putting your hand somewhere that you can't see maybe uh, maybe think twice and look where your feet are going particularly over fallen logs and things where you're where you're stepping into a kind of blind spot uh but explore we've got a wonderful uh, environment out here and our backyard is phenomenally beautiful and these creatures are fascinating as well uh, if you're seeing snakes that's a wonderful opportunity <laughs> to take a moment and, and see an important part of the ecosystem that's out there and there you are, see them sorry if you see them near your house maybe take some of those um clothing measures into the bedroom as well, <laughs> well look, don't, don't, sleep in boots going to sleep kind of christine's boots. point she, the first thing she noted was she thought it might be a mouse mm. uh, if you've got mice there's a good chance that you've got snakes around as well oh, of course. come on <laughs> Because that's, that's a food source. Uh, and so, look, I know we're kind of hedging the... He, he, kind of trying to find the balance yes. of going, hey, there's danger lurking everywhere, but also don't stress too much because <laughs> everything's fine. Awesome. Everything's uh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> so fine. We've also got Kylie on the line from Frankston. Now, you don't have mice on your property, but I believe you've got some finches that the snakes might have been a fan of, Kylie. Kylie, you're on the air. 
We'll pop Kylie back on hold and see if we can get her. I guess that's a good question, though, if you've got other little pets pets around the house. We're not saying get rid of your small pets because that's going to invite snakes, but you should be careful of them. Absolutely. And, I mean, having any kind of animal around the house may increase the chances of snakes. Maybe rodents are coming in to feed on that bird seed or maybe the snakes are targeting the birds directly. You know, people with chickens, for example, Mm. certainly in all the tropical parts of Australia, much more likely to have pythons around their home if they've got chickens. So, yeah, absolutely. Any animals around... Around, more likely to have snakes coming to Where does out. the snake fit in to the food chain system and into our ecosystem? Is it high up on the chain? You know, is it getting respect or is it down the bottom <laughs> freaking out? Look, it depends on the snake. We have a massive diversity of snakes in Australia and just for the venomous species alone, we've got over 100 species on land and more than 40 in the oceans and they are large and small and everything in between. So they occupy very, very different uh, places in the uh, in the food chain, so to speak. They're all predators though. So they're all eating other animals. Some of the small ones might only be eating the eggs of other animals, but so they all occupy the niche of a predator, uh, and some of them specialise in feeding on other reptiles, some of them specialise in feeding on mammals, they have diverse diets. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're really at all levels of that hierarchy, but the key thing is that they are important components of every terrestrial ecology in Australia. Snakes are ubiquitous here. I guess here. that's where the overlap comes, right? So if you get small rodent populations and those kinds of things and small mammals, they go where the food is too and humans are a great source of food for them and so where the overlap is if, if, if you've got a small animal that's kind of uh, leaving sort of dog biscuits or, or other bits and pieces that a rat or a mouse or something similar might enjoy they're going to congregate around our houses and that's where sort of our overlapping habitats kind of come into Clean play. up your room. <laughs> and also, this has just reminded me as well, obviously working in the rural space, we've been speaking a lot about mice plagues in the last few yes. years as well. So in addition to the flooding, we've also got mice plagues going on, which is also attracting snakes. Absolutely. So bring in the snakes for the mice plague. Indeed. But, Mm. you know, one of the reasons why brown snakes are one of the most commonly encountered snakes in rural areas is because they are one of these species that pretty much specialises as adults in feeding on mammals. When they're younger, they eat a lot of different things. When they're babies, they just eat lizards. But certainly in years where there are mice plagues, you're going to see a lot more brown snakes. These are boom or bust animals. Even the inland taipan, a very famous snake in Australia, famously the world's most venomous snake with drop for drop, uh, it's a rodent specialist and it's something that feeds on rats. During plague years in particular, the long-tailed rats in the Black Soil Plains. So absolutely, a mouse mouse plague or a rat plague, you're probably going to have more snakes too. Michael's in Hastings. Hi, Michael. How are you going? Good. What was your question? Um, Sort of a bit of a story. My dad was bitten by a snake about four years ago. Same thing, didn't know he was bitten. About three days later, quite a bit of swelling and rash on his leg. And went to the hospital confirmed it was a snake bite, but... What the problem was, it was the, apparently the bacteria in the snake's fangs that caused an infection in his leg, that which causes his leg to sort of... Rot. Necrosis. Yeah, necrosis, I think um, it's called. Yeah, so they've had to... They did a skin graft on his leg, but it Gosh. never worked. And four years later, he's still got this mank leg that's just never healed and... He's just been sort of pushed from surgeon to surgeon because oh. everyone oh, that's throws awful their hands up. And I mean, yeah, so I didn't realise the bacteria was the thing yeah. that could do the damage. Well, this is a very, very uncommon consequence of snake bite, but it is a possible consequence of any kind of wound. So it's impossible to say that, you know, if your father was bitten by a snake, that the bacteria actually came from the snake itself. He may have had an open wound on the leg there for a little while that some other environmental source of bacteria, um, you know, enabled it to to infect him. And it's, it's just impossible for us to say. Sometimes snake teeth will actually break off, though, when they bite, and sometimes the skin will actually grow back over that, and only some period of time later, this is usually what happens to you know snake geeks like me, but um, people get bitten by snakes. A snake tooth remains there, and that can be the, the site of an infection later on, or a you know strange. So, any suggestions as to where Michael's dad could go to have that looked at? I mean. It- is no, there a I mean, specialist? It, it sounds like he's going to the best place at the moment, mm-hmm. which is surgeons specialised in that particularly. Uh, as you said, it comes down to a bacterial mm. uh, side of things with, with an incidental snake bite, which may or may not have precipitated what sort of happened. Very sorry to hear that that's happening to your father and hope hope that his leg yeah. gets better soon. We wish you all the best, yeah, Michael. Thank no you. Gosh. Another complication that you don't think of as well. Uh, we've also got another snake bite story, I believe, from Jennifer in Ringwood. Welcome to the conversation now, Jennifer. Hello. Um, What's your story? Yeah, 
We, uh, me and some friends, do a hike around the Great Southwest Walk every Christmas. It's our coming up to our third one in two weeks. And um, last year turned out to be a bit more eventful than previous uh, hikes because um, one night as we're, you know, finishing dinner and packing up, getting ready to hop into the tents. I'd already gone to bed at this point, but some of the boys were still up packing up. And um, I hear this voice outside my tent, Jennifer, a snake's active at night. (laughs) And... (laughs) My heart starts thumping naturally and um, my friend stuck his, his hand into the tent and he's got these two perfect little puncture marks on his thumb. And uh, I just, So it was you know, that sort of vampire looking bite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he had been picking up his hiking pack to, in the, there's like a little, you know, two-sided shelter there and he was picking up his hiking pack to chuck it up on one of the pegs so the possums wouldn't get into the food. And he said he went to pick up the um, the hose for his camel black, camelback mm-hmm. and uh, thought that, you know, maybe a stick had, like, flicked up and just scratched him. I was like, mate, that is not a stick. Mm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, with snake bandage on and... and so uh, you had snake bandages. Because that's a big yeah. part of it too, Jennifer, isn't it, uh, is being prepared. If you're going to go hiking or even walking over summer is to be prepared. So what did you do after that? You bandaged and what was the next step? Yeah, we had an emergency beacon because it's an area with no reception, so we set that off, which was its own thing. We'd we'd never hit the ear curb before, and um, you expect sort of like a SWAT team to come, um, <laughs> like zip lining out of the forest as soon as you hit the button. But all that happens is this little light just blinks every thirty seconds or so. But, you know, it's still on. Slightly less dramatic, <laughs> yes. And then you sit there and you wait and you wait. How long did you wait? Uh, the first oh, shout out to the Haywood SES. Um, the first two guys rocked up in about 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister was, my sister had jogged a few k's up the road, so she got enough reception to get a call through to triple zero. Um, but they <laughs> they were a little less help because they kept asking, oh, where can we land a helicopter? And we're like, I don't know, man. In, <laughs> no idea. We're in the Copperberry Forest. And she said, oh, is there, a, is there a sports field nearby? And we're like, no, we're in the forest. <laughs> Uh, what about the road? And we're like, well, we're in a forest. So yeah. <laughs> 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 Jennifer, you sound like the perfect textbook camper. I mean... Very well prepared. Yeah. Yes. Um, what what happened to your friend? Did they recover okay? Yeah, so um, eventually, you know, more SES came. They cut the park. Park Vic is really smart and they lock all their gates. So to get the ambulance down, they had to bring out the big angle grinder. Um, so he went to... Um, the Portland Hospital, shout out to those guys as well, and spent the night under observation and 12 hours later he got released and went back on the trail and walked another 200 days. So <laughs> went back. <laughs> We're getting all these beautiful textbook cases of yes. how to handle a situation. It might be a good idea to just talk about first aid quickly and how yes. best to prepare. One, you've done a great job in having a snake bandage in your backpack. If you're going out hiking or something or bushwalking, uh, a little bandage down the back of, your, uh, down the back of your, uh, your case or your backpack or whatever else or in your pocket and uh, even is a just shorter walks too. So mm, this absolutely. is not, you know, you don't think, well, I don't go hiking, but if you're, if you're taking on a, bag a holiday with a somewhere, water, chuck it in. Yes. We've also got to remember that most bites happen in backyards. So <laughs> you know, have it in the, in the, in the emergency kit inside as well. Mm. But look, if you, if you are, if you do happen to be bitten, uh, best thing to do is stay calm. Uh, keep that heart rate down as much as possible, which is what our last caller did. Uh, if you're bitten on the hand, for example, take any rings or constricting jewellery off uh, and then bandage from the, the tips of the fingers uh, up the arm as far as the bandage will go. You want it to be nice and firm. You don't want to cut off circulation to the fingers. They don't want to go blue or anything, but you do want it to be nice and firm under there. And so if it's on the finger, you go all the way up the arm. Keep it straight. Go as high up the arm as the bandage will allow, up to the armpit. Uh, if it's on the leg, start from the toes. Same thing, up to the thigh, uh, over the bite. So nice firm, firm, but not so you Keep well, as tight as possible without cutting off circulation. So you do want it to be very tight. So that's a pretty big bandage then that you're going to well, need. This is a really important point because the kinds of bandages that you get in a lot of, you know, first aid kits that you might just pick up at the, at the pharmacy are little crepe bandages and they're really not adequate for this task. Pharmacies will often sell separately a good quality compression bandage and that's really what you need. And in fact, you, you might want more than one because the other part of this first aid method is called pressure immobilization bandaging. So you've got the pressure from the bandage. You also want to be immobilizing the bitten limb. Um, you might be using a splint. You might be bandaging it to the body with another bandage. So having a, a couple is also a good idea. The, the end result there is, though, keeping the limb still. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't have a bandage, don't 
use anything else. Don't try and tourniquet and cut off supply or anything like that because you're much more likely to do damage by cutting off blood supply than anything else. So once you've bandaged, you just you stay put and you stay, s- stay help as still comes as possible. You. Help comes to you. If you do need to walk a little bit, uh, well, basically move as little as possible. If you need to walk a little bit to get to where the ambulance is going to be able to reach you, uh, then do that slowly and with the aid of a, of a friend. This hour has absolutely flown by. Just to summarise a few text messages and calls, because we've got a full board and we have not been able to get to all the text messages, but thank you so much for all your questions and, and uh, contributions today, everybody. Can you deter snakes from being around your house? You just mentioned that it being in the backyard, uh, that's where most bites happen. Can you actually deter snakes and get them away from your home? Yeah, burn some kind of incense or something. <laughs> well, rather than thinking about deterrence, we can think about just not encouraging them. You know, there are things like snake deterrence um, that are on the market, things that emit vibratory pulses and that sort of stuff, and they've been shown not to work. And, in fact, some people even claim that they attract snakes. But basically, <laughs> don't... Don't waste your money on any of that. That is technological snake oil. So avoid that kind of thing. But just don't make the the backyard too attractive for snakes, you know. So mow the lawn. Don't have piles of bricks or other building materials around. Remember that snakes like to hide. Snakes are really... Uh, water is certainly something that might attract snakes. So if you've got a pond, which is a lovely thing to have, a little bit further away from the house, it might be a good idea. Um, but, yeah, basically just keeping things as tidy as possible, remembering that snakes are really invested in being hidden, so don't allow them to be hidden. But then also don't assume that because you have a tidy backyard that there's no possibility of having snakes. You've got to remain alert in any area where there might be snakes. And, again, remembering, like I said a moment ago, we do have bites on, on hikes and things like that, and people often think to be prepared in those sorts of situations. But the majority of bites are actually in suburban backyards in Australia. So you do have to be aware, even in your backyard, you do have to have that first aid kit in the house. It's about half half the number of bites from snakes around the home. Uh, the other thing you can do is if you're, you're not sure, there's a there's a, uh, an app, uh, a smartphone app that we've helped uh, to create sort of content for, along with CSL Securus, who's the antivenom manufacturer, called Bites and Stings, uh, which is freely available. And that'll go through the first aid stuff. It'll tell you a little That's bit a about snakes idea. in your area and those kinds of things. I'll give you Put some that advice on, on how to do. This text here. Thanks, snake experts. I'm <laughs> holidaying near Warrnambool in the new year, and this has been a great reminder. Mm. As Jane McNaughton in Ballarat said, apologies to all of the callers and texts that we couldn't get through. I think we're going to have to do this again. I'm sweating. Snake part two. My palms Snake part two. are really sweaty. Dr Andrew Watt, Dr Tim Jackson, they're the co-directors of the Australian Venom Research Unit based at the School of Biomedical Sciences at Melbourne University. It's been awesome, guys. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful, merry and safe Christmas. I know you probably want to see snakes when you're going out and about, but the rest of us don't. <laughs> Jane McNaughton as always, thank you so much. This is our last show together for this year, but we'll have you back next year. Have a safe and wonderful Christmas, and we'll talk to you in the new year. You too, Rochelle. Cheers. I'll be back with you tomorrow. Until then, be safe, be well, get those bandages ready, clean up those backyards, and I'll speak to you tomorrow. Until then, take care. I'll speak soon.